Have you ever wondered about the nature of true ministry? If you could boil down the ministry within the body of Christ to its essential elements, what would they be? What would they be? Let's say, for the sake of understanding, that as a Christian, you were concerned about whether or not your ministry was really pleasing to the Lord. You've been laboring for Christ ever since you were converted, and within the bounds of your abilities and desires, and that coupled with God's providence as to where He's placed you, you've wondered whether or not your ministry to others is genuinely what the Lord intends for you to do. A lot of us have that question in our minds. One of the ways I think you can determine the answer to that question is to understand the passage we're about to study together in Romans chapter 15, verses 15 to 21. So if you will, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verses 15 to 21. While, of course, there are some obvious elements in this passage to Paul's own unique apostolic ministry that are, of course, unique to him and which occurred through him for that specific time, nevertheless, there are ways we can assess our own ministries from this wonderful portion of Scripture. Let's read Romans 15, verses 15 to 21. You follow along as I read. Paul says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud for my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." If I were to outline this passage, I would see several clear elements, eight of them to be exact, of a person's ministry to others. Those eight are the substance of your ministry, the substance of your ministry, secondly, the source of your ministry, the source of your ministry, thirdly, the sphere of your ministry, the sphere of it. Fourth, the satisfaction of your ministry, the satisfaction. Five, the success of it, the success of your ministry. 
Sixthly, the signs of your ministry. Seventh, the scope of it, the scope of your ministry. And finally, the selflessness of your ministry. The substance, the source, the sphere, the satisfaction, the success, the signs, the scope, and the selflessness. Those, I think, here in verses 15 to 21 of Romans 15 are essential elements of a person's ministry to others within the body of Christ. Now, I don't suspect we'll get through all of them this morning. In fact, I know I won't. But I will, I think, in the Lord's timing and will, discuss the first four of them with a natural break at the end of the fourth, and then we'll pick up the other four next time. I said last Lord's Day that these particular elements that comprise Paul's ministry are listed for us in verses 15 to 21, and I told you that verse 14 is a bridge verse that takes us from what Paul has said before in Romans 14.1 through chapter 15 verse 13 and is like a bridge carrying us now to verses 15 to 21. It's like a bridge or a hinge. And I said that for a reason. The reason is Paul is talking in chapter 14 verse 1 through chapter 15 verse 13 about some of these so-called gray areas of the Christian life, and we looked at these in great detail. One of the things that he says in this particular section in verse 14 is what we covered last time. And he said, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, if you remember from last week, I said to you that this is the Christian's DNA. The Christian's DNA. We as Christians, Paul says, are full of goodness. That is, that we are bulging with goodness. We are full of it in the sense that once we were morally despicable and sinful, but God, through His grace, came to us, delivered us from our sin and gave us a goodness that we never had before. And we are continually filling ourselves with the right deeds and the right attitudes that Christians are supposed to be characterized by. He also says there, we're filled with all knowledge. That is, that we have at God's disposal for us and in us and ultimately through us a knowledge of God's words a knowledge of God's ways, so that, he says, we are able, in this third component of the Christian's DNA, able to instruct or admonish one another. We are able to teach one another, to warn one another about certain aspects of the Christian life, including admonishing each other when we exalt our preferences in these gray areas over against the bounds of what the Word of God teaches. If, in fact, an area is gray, it's not black or it's not white, it's not right or it's not wrong, it's gray, it's in the middle somewhere, and if 
the Word of God doesn't commend it to be done for the Christian, or he doesn't condemn it in God's Word as to be taken away from the Christian or not done by the Christian, then it's gray. And if it's gray, then it can be done, except if it's done in such a way that someone is flaunting their liberty or doing something that causes a weak brother to stumble into sin, then Paul admonishes these Roman believers that they ought to warn or to instruct or to admonish each other to give up their liberties for the sake of genuine unity in the body. And that unity causes us then to mature as a body even as we choose as strong Christians to give up some aspects of our liberty. And that's how we grow together. And so this admonishing ministry, this teaching ministry, is what Paul says makes up the Christian's DNA. That's what we are, and that's what we can do toward one another. It's the very makeup of who we are in the body of Christ and what we can do toward each other. And now, Paul wants to give them an example of that very admonishing. Notice under that first outline point, the substance of your ministry, the first part of Romans 15, 15. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Now this is the bridge now that picks up from that verse 14 right on to the first step of that bridge. And that is Paul saying... I am following through as a model on the very admonishing ministry that I just told you about that you ought to have with one another. I've admonished you. That's what I've done. I have written to you very boldly. If the Christian has a DNA component of being able to admonish one another, Paul says, I have it too. And my ministry of admonishment is to write you boldly about some points. And he says, I have done that. He's showing them the very modeling, the very example of being a person who is an admonisher, a teacher, a warner. And he says, what I've told you is true about you is also true about me. And up to this point in his letter, on some of those points, we don't know exactly what those points are, he's directly referring to, but he says, on some points, I have written to you very boldly. In other words, I've admonished you. I've modeled before you what you are to do, that you would obey the Lord and have a fruitful and faithful ministry. They share a common salvation, and within the scope of their Christian life, several things, he says, must be emphasized. And notice what he says. Here's the substance of his ministry to them. I have written you very boldly on some points, and notice what he says, by way of what? Reminder. Reminder. In other words, I have emphasized to you and will continue to emphasize to you over and over and over again the things about which you know and that you should continue to know and that you should continue to carry out in your Christian life. Why? I mean, in one sense, people think, and I'm sure you think about yourself, I'm an intelligent person, I've got some gray matter about me, I've got 
the kind of brain power that if you tell me something, I have it. Why must I be reminded over and over and over again about the Christian life? If I have it, I have it. If you've told me, I know it. Well, two things. We need to be reminded about certain aspects of the Christian life, maybe even most aspects of the Christian life, because of two things. Forgetfulness and familiarity. Forgetfulness and familiarity. We forget aspects of the Christian life simply because while we have a good mind, it isn't a perfect mind. It isn't a mind that always and forever remembers all of the things that we should know and do. It just simply isn't that way. And maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum and you would say, not only do I acknowledge that, but it seems as though I continually forget some of the most basic aspects of the Christian life, it seems, all the time. So whether you are saying about yourself, I know it, I have it, I got it, let's move on, or you're a person that says, no, no, let's back up, let's go over that again, I need to be reminded... Paul says that part of the aspect of the Christian life is forgetfulness that we all must know and be reemphasized again and again in people's teaching ministry toward us, especially the preacher, of course. There is another aspect, and that is the idea of familiarity. We are so familiar with the truths of God's Word, so many of us, that it sounds like repetition is boring. It sounds like repetition because of our, our familiarity. It's not something that we enjoy. But we, because of being familiar with the truth, have to be reminded of it. It's familiar in this sense. It can become passe. It can become old hat. It can become so familiar to us that because we have heard it over and over and over again, it loses its punch. It loses our drive and determination to see it for what it is, and that is the familiar old truth of the gospel, the gospel that we heard from the very beginning of our Christian life to now, and we can become so familiar with it that it becomes ho-hum. And I suspect for those two reasons and maybe a whole host of other things, Paul says, I am writing to you by way of reminder and even writing to you at points on some very bold manners. And so this is really a part of the Christian life. We either are forgetting things or we're so familiar with them that we need to be admonished. We need to be warned and instructed on a continual basis. By the way, this is what... Almost every Bible writer does. Some of them not so particularly saying that's what they're doing, but others saying exactly that. In fact, look at your Bibles at 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice how Peter does this. He says the same thing that Paul does here about reminding them. 2 Peter chapter 1, after going through a section in which he talks about our faith and needing to add to it all of the virtues that he lists there, qualities that would prove us neither ineffective nor unfruitful. Notice what he says in verse 12. After giving us that list of those qualities that should be ours as Christians and should be growing. Verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. You say, remind me about 
love, remind me about self-control and knowledge and faith. Yes. Godliness, brotherly affection. Yes. Reminding you over and over and over again. And I can hear someone saying, well, there you go again. Reminding me about loving one another. I've got it. I know it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Well, we forget or we're all so familiar with it. And he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And someone says, well, if I know them and if I'm established in the truth that I have, why remind, why remind me? Verse 13, I think it right, so long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, I know I'm going to die, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. You know what he's saying? I'm going to remind you until my dying day. Because I know once I'm gone, you're going to have a tendency to forget. Or you're going to have a tendency for it to be so familiar, it'll be ho-hum to you. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. First Peter, of course, being the first. It's the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of what? Reminder. Peter's a broken record. I like that about him. First John chapter 2, verse 7. John gets in the act. First John 2, 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the one that you have heard. You say, okay, I'm writing you no new commandment. I'm familiarizing yourself. I'm reminding you of an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. Although, he says in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And if you're like me, you're saying, well, now, wait a minute. Is it an old commandment that you're now rehearsing with us, or is it a new commandment that we haven't heard before? And the answer, of course, is yes. It's an old commandment in the sense that we're always called upon to love one another, We're always called upon to meet the needs of our brethren, but it's new in this sense. It's new that Jesus Christ Himself has brought a new reality, a transforming reality to what love love looks like, and it's in the person of Christ. And He goes on to tell us in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, in him there is no cause For stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Look at Christ. See the new way that he loves. But in one sense, it's always been the old way. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father hearing from the beginning, and he's reminding us of it as well. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There it is again, reminding us yet again. Look at 2 John, 2 John 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, 
Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, there he goes again, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And I can just hear somebody saying, I got it. Over and over and over again, love one another, love one another, love one another. It's repeatedly given to us in the New Testament. I have it. Why waste pen and ink? Apparently the Holy Spirit believed it was necessary for us to be reminded of this. Why? Because it's so easy for us not to walk in love. And we have to see it on the printed page. Verse 6, and this is love, Second John 6, this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You see, Paul's writing ministry, Peter's writing ministry, John's writing ministry. As apostles, Bible writers, and I'm sure other non-scriptural letters that they wrote, had real, tangible substance to them, whether it was love one another or whatever command, or when Paul is saying here, I'm writing you very boldly on these things, I'm admonishing you, we need that substance. No mere pious platitudes. No pie-in-the-sky ideas. Down-to-earth, substantive, tangible truth. And that's what Paul is saying that he's doing. And in Paul's case, it was a writing ministry, right? He wrote 13 letters of our New Testament. That was his ministry, his ministry of writing. And he says, I've written very boldly to you. That's Paul. That was part of his ministry. That may not be your ministry. It could be, of course, in a non-canonical sense, in a non-spirit-inspired sense, that you have a ministry of writing. You would be, in one sense then, like Paul, Writing people as a part of your ministry. That's what a lot of older saints do who don't have the bodily opportunity to go out and see people and minister to them. And so often they have the ministry of prayer and the ministry of writing. I can't tell you how many encouragements I've received through the years by those, even those who are homebound, aren't able to come to the Bible Church of Little Rock, but who have a ministry of writing and who often write me notes of encouragement And when I get a note in the mail from one of these dear saints, it just blesses my heart because I can see what they're doing in their ministry in the final days. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about ministering to others. In fact, that was really Paul. He wanted to continue to write and study all the way until his dying day. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. When you come, speaking to Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus. It's obviously very, very cold there. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus. That's a name, the name of a person, not a fish. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. And then he says this, also the books and above all the parchments. He was committed to writing. He was committed to reading. He was committed to studying. That's why I love him so much. That's why it's biblical. Bring also the books. That's what I say. Bring also the books. Bring all of them to me. I'll read them all. Paul was committed to admonishing them by way of the substantive nature of his ministry. Now, you may not have that. You may not have that kind of ministry. I don't know what the substance of your ministry is, but are you seeking to fulfill it faithfully like Paul? Whatever it is, whatever you're doing, One of the ways that you can ask the question that I posed at the beginning, 
Lord, are you pleased with my ministry? Is to ask, is the substance of it fulfilling? Whatever I'm doing, whatever it is, is the substance fulfilling? Is it a ministry of substance? Whatever it might be. Now, Paul's ministry obviously had tremendous substance. I mean, all of these 13 letters of our New Testament that still bless our hearts over and over and over again. But what about your ministry? Is it a ministry of substance? Is there real, tangible, life-giving ministry that flows out from you? Are you writing people? Are you talking to people? Are you ministering to people about the Lord and about what the Lord requires of us? Are you admonishing one another? If you're writing, and it certainly isn't a writing like Paul, surely no one is pinning the Holy Scripture today, but whether it's a ministry of paper or a ministry of your personal presence, is it a ministry of substance? Are you reminding and re-reminding people of what the Lord requires of us as believers? Now they may say to you, I got it! Stop! You don't have to keep telling me that. Or, I'm very familiar with that, thank you. Forgetfulness and familiarity breed contempt. If we're not careful, we'll need the careful, thoughtful ministry of others that has substance, and we ought to welcome them. And that's what our ministry ought to be about. Secondly, he says, at the the end of verse 15, what I call the source of your ministry. Notice what he says. I'm writing to you very boldly on some points. That's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Because of the grace given me by God. Please don't read a little phrase like that and say to yourself, number one, I got it. I got grace. I I, I understand that. And secondly, don't just read the latter part of a verse like that and assume that's just one of the multiplied hundreds of times Paul talks about grace and see that in a familiar way as ho-hum. Don't do that. This is, again, writing by the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul. And very advisedly, Paul says, I'm writing to you very boldly, and I'm doing so as the substantive part of my ministry because of the grace of God. It was given to me by Him. That is so important. And that's why I call it the source of your ministry. You will not have a substantive ministry. It will not have impact. It will not have effect unless you continually are reminded yourself, like Paul was reminding himself, that it is a ministry out of the ever-flowing grace of God. It's the grace of God. It's the only way we have a ministry. It's the only reality behind the effectiveness of ministry. Paul is unique. I grant you that. Called by the grace of God to be a minister to the Gentiles. It was unique. It was apostolic. That's true. In his case, what he's saying here is that he has been specially called to be in the unique position of being the apostle to the Gentiles. But make no mistake about it. God's matchless grace, unique to him, but available to us, is no less grace. It's no less grace. 
He didn't have some kind of super abundant grace that isn't available to us. Same God. And He dispenses grace mercifully to us and calls me into a ministry for Him. Certainly won't be as an apostle, but it will be a ministry nonetheless for which God gives me grace to see its effect. I believe the secret of Paul's success in ministry was the very fact that he never lost sight of the reality of the grace of God for ministry. Never lost sight of that. Constantly. In fact, you track it. I wish we had time. I wish we had time to trace each and one of Paul's very statements about his calling to ministry. Because everywhere you find Paul talking about his calling, the word grace appears. It was the secret of his success. He mentions this ministry to the Gentiles, and he references in the very context the sovereign grace of God. That's why it was successful. God's grace captivated him. It overwhelmed him. It consumed his life. It dominated his thinking. I've seen this lived out. You remember when C.J. Mahaney came and ministered here? We had some lunch with him as elders after one of his teaching times. And I've seen this because I've been with him on several occasions. And every time he's been asked to give his testimony, especially in a small setting, He just cries and weeps over the grace of God. And for him, it's the grace of God as seen through a drug addict who wasn't even thinking of God, had no reason to believe that that God was anywhere around, and someone who had been a fellow drug addict had come to Christ, shared the gospel with him on a night in which C.J. didn't want the gospel, he wanted another joint. And God in His marvelous, super abounding grace through the gospel witness of that former drug addict brought him to Christ. And every single time he thinks about that, tears flow, grace captivates him. It overwhelms him. And it should all of us, with or without tears, with or without the dramatic testimony. In whatever way you were before you came to Christ, just think of your life now since Christ has conferred His grace upon you. And it ought to captivate all of us. And it ought to sound for us the horn of grace every time we think about doing any ministry whatsoever, public or private. No wonder... The people who are successful in ministry are successful because they no doubt believe, affirm, and are captivated and overwhelmed by the grace of God. Remember Jesus' own words in John 15 to His own disciples, those who would become the apostles of the church. He said in John 15, apart from Me, you can what? Do nothing. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Paul knew that. He even said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, I've heard people say when I've gone up to them and said, How are you? And they've quoted the first part of that verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's great. That's wonderful. 
That's what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, referring to the other apostles. And someone's going to say, that sounds proud. That's arrogant. I I worked harder than any of the other apostles. He goes on to say, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see? A ministry of substance recognizes as its source the grace of God. Is that the success of your ministry? That you recognize the source of it, the grace of God, the sheer, unmitigated, unadulterated grace of a merciful God who gives us something when we deserve nothing. The source of all of our ministries, whatever those ministries may be, and in whatever form they may take, is God's grace and God's grace alone. Do you thank God for not only His salvation grace, but His ministry grace, His sanctifying grace? The grace to get up in the morning? The grace to speak a word of testimony to your children? The grace to read your Bible? The grace to pray? The grace to drive? The grace to work? The grace of full health, it's all there. It's God's grace. And you know, we're so very sinful and we are so forgetful and we are so familiar. Paul says, I am writing you boldly on some points by way of reminder that I am what I am by the grace of God. It is the grace given me by God. How could we ever forget that? How could we ever forget it? And yet it seems that our minds are cluttered with so many other things in life that we forget even the grace of God. How could it be? Or we become so familiar with grace. Oh, yes. Grace. Yes, yes. How could we be so familiar with grace that we're not captivated by it every day of our lives? Paul has a third element of ministry here. Look at the first part of verse 16. What is is grace given to him by God look like, especially to Paul? Well, here's the sphere of his ministry. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Oh, I love that. Here's the sphere of his ministry. I mean, you may have yours, I may have mine, here's Paul's sphere, I've been given grace, God has called me specially to be a minister of Christ Jesus, His Lord, to the Gentiles, Paul being a Jew, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. By sovereign decree, God slammed a Jew down on the Damascus road and said, I'm sending you to the nations. What would a Jew think? What would a a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, who was going on that very road in Damascus to kill Christians if he could? Is there a poetic justice there? Surely there is. Paul, I'm calling you by my grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in this priestly service of the gospel of God. That's exactly what he says all the way back in the first chapter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God 
the gospel which is about God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power. He's just preaching the gospel immediately. According to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace, there's grace again, and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, and then this, among all the nations, among whom you, you Romans, are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. Grace and peace to you. He accepted his call. He accepted the sphere of his ministry. He didn't kick against it. He accepted it as God's will. But I want you to notice something that I indicated in our study of some of these so-called gray areas back in Romans 14 and the first part of chapter 15. The Greek word that Paul uses here to describe his ministry. Notice what he says here, to be a minister of Christ Jesus, that word is leturgos. It's not diakonos. It's not a normal word that we might assume that Paul would use in a context like this. He's using liturgos, and that's a word that's used in other contexts, sometimes translated worship. Worship. Hence the title of the message, Your Ministry as Worship. I think what Paul is saying by using that particular term is in the context of what he's saying here, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, notice, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You know what he's doing? He's grabbing all of that Old Testament language about the sacrificial system, about offering up an animal as a sacrifice to God and the burning of that animal so that the sweet aroma could waft up to the nostrils of God so that God would be satisfied, pleased with the Old Testament worshiper's sacrifice. Now, Paul isn't talking literally here. He isn't saying that that's what he's doing the Gentiles. He's not offering them up as Abraham was attempting to offer Isaac up on the altar there on Mount Moriah. He isn't doing that. He's not talking literally here. He's talking metaphorically. What he's doing is he's borrowing the language and he's transforming it into a new covenant sense. And while... The Old Testament worshiper would take a literal lamb, spotless and blameless, and offer it to the priest as an offering to God. And the priest would see that offering as acceptable as the one in the place between the offerer and God himself. Paul says, I am, as it were, that priest. And the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ through my ministry are the people that I'm offering up to God through my ministry as a sweet aroma to His nostrils. That's what he's saying his ministry is comprised of. Hence, your ministry as worship. Oh, my friends, if you don't see what you're doing in ministry as an offering of worship to God, you've missed it. You've missed the concept 
of what it means to minister for Jesus Christ. This is what he says. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. He likens his ministry of preaching the gospel as his priestly offering. This is New Testament ministry. And, and while, while Paul could be said to do this on an official level as a unique minister, as, a, as an apostle to the Gentiles, we nevertheless ourselves in our own unique ministry because it's unique to us have a calling from God, whatever it is, however it is, and whatever sphere God takes us, He says, I want you to be a minister. I want you to be a worshiper in and through your ministry. I want you to offer up to me the ministry that I've given you so that it would be a sweet aroma to my nostrils. That's why if we're not seeing whatever ministry, whatever sphere of contact we have with believers or even unbelievers as worship, then we've missed what our ministry is all about. We've we've missed the point. And you know what? This could energize every single person's ministry, no matter how great or small. If it's a small ministry in your own eyes, let alone what others may have said about you, if it's a ministry to the smallest little baby, to the most senior saint, if it's ministering to those who are in death and dying, if it's a ministry to those who are in birth and living, it is a ministry of worship. That's what your ministry is. By your ministry, you are worshiping God, or by your ministry, you are denying the essence of its very worship. So how's your ministry? You could be a minister as a housewife. You can be a minister as a mom, as a teacher, as a laborer, as a preacher. And always and in every way, our ministry is to be a liturgos a ministry of worship. That's what he says. He even says in Philippians 2.25 when he talks about Epaphroditus, he says he's this and this and this and a minister, liturgos, minister to my need. He's ministering to Paul on a physical level and that is a ministry of worship. Don't ever think you're giving someone a cool cup of water in Jesus' name is trivial or less than anything other than the sovereign act by a gracious God of worship. Worship to Him. Worship to Him. He's given you an opportunity. Are you maximizing your opportunity? We may not be seeing a one-to-one parallel with Paul's ministry, and you may think that worship is this corporate sense of what we're doing on a Sunday morning, and it is, but everything you're doing in your vocation, everything you're doing in your avocation, in your ministry to believers or unbelievers is a worship experience. And some of you might say, I don't even know where my ministry is. I don't even know what the sphere of my ministry is. Just start serving and God will move you along. Just start doing it. Just start meeting the needs of those around you. 
Let people be encouraged by whatever you're doing in the maximum impact of the body of Christ because you are a liturgos called by God just as Paul himself was called, no less a calling even if not unique like his to be a minister as a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the satisfaction of your ministry. Look at the latter part of verse 16. So that for the very purpose that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's really what we want. That's what Paul wanted. That's what we want. We just want our ministry to be acceptable to God. God, do you, do you see my ministry as acceptable? Is there a sweet aroma in your nostrils for what I'm doing? I just want it to be acceptable. I just want you to be satisfied. The satisfaction of my ministry is to know that God Himself is pleased. And I, I suspect that if Paul's going to later in verse 21, and we'll get there, quotes Isaiah, I suspect that maybe since he's read that wonderful Old Testament book so many times, that maybe in his mind, in the language here, that the Gentiles may be acceptable, it may very well have to do with his reading of chapter 66 of Isaiah, verses 19 and 20. Listen to it. You don't have to turn there. I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, and draw the bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Verse 20, And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Maybe Paul just borrows that and says, Here's what I'm doing. I am offering the Gentiles to the Lord. These converted Gentiles who have seen Yahweh and His Son, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, I'm bringing the very offering of these Gentiles to you because they've come to faith in Christ. And I offer them up to you, God. I trust they're acceptable. Boy, what a, what a ministry of worship. What a ministry of worship. You know, in Hebrews 13, 15, it says, so that we might ourselves offer, offer up a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. 1 Peter 2, 5, that we ourselves as living stones are being offered up as a spiritual sacrifice and offering to God through Jesus Christ. You see, we're all supposed to be a part of this. Everybody has a ministry. And everybody's ministry is to be a ministry of worship. Is that yours? Is that the way you think of your life in the ministry? We should and we must in order to be pleasing to God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that ours can be a ministry of substance, and whatever it may be, through the source of your grace, in the sphere of where you've placed us, for the satisfaction of your own heart.
Oh, may this be so, Lord. And may those who don't know you come to know you and to have this kind of ministry. And for those here, Lord, that don't have a relationship with you, may they see this ministry as worship so inviting that they would bow their knee to Jesus Christ, repent and turn from their sin, and fall on their face before Christ in trust and utter dependence, and take on a ministry as though it were the very worship that they could give to you each and every day. Oh, may that be our hearts. May we who have been believers for months and or many years see all of what we do that is called ministry be as worship, like sweet aroma to your nostrils. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.